Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. You're listening to the Naked Bible Podcast. To support this podcast, go to NakedBiblePodcast.com and click on the support link in the upper right-hand corner. If you're new to the podcast and Dr. Heiser's approach to the Bible, click on New Start Here at NakedBiblePodcast.com. Welcome to the Naked Bible Podcast, episode 359, The Myth Made Fact with Louis Marcos. I'm the layman, Trey Strickland, and he's the scholar, Dr. Michael Heiser. Hey, Mike. How you doing? Well, we're in 2021, Trey. Still, yeah. We, yeah, <laughs> still, <laughs> still, yeah. It's still 2021. 2021, yeah. You know, well, I, I say that because you know, at, at first it was like, it, it was like a release. You know, but a, a week or so ago, back when you know it happened. You know, like, well, we're finally in 2021, and now it's like, yeah, we're in 2021. Here we go again. <laughs> Well, I, yeah, lots I mean, of stuff going on that we wish was was different. Yeah, no words to describe what's going on other than everybody needs to turn to the Lord. That's all I got to say, Mike. People so, need the Lord, you know that. That's, that, that, that's pretty much it. That's it. And the, like and the church do. needs to remember the Lord. Yeah, you know, it, wouldn't it be nice? I honestly, remind so Lord myself, willing. Yeah. All right. So. Other than that, though, I mean, busy. Our our, our term you know, at the Awakening School is about you know we're on the threshold of that beginning. So, you know, we're just hunkering down, doing what we do, and and enjoying good content, good discussions. And I think today is going to be another one of those. Absolutely, never get tired of of, of Lou here. His energy is. Uh, <laughs> yeah, can can you bottle that? <laughs> Yeah, it's uh, uh I'm, I'm, the word eludes me right now. Infection, it's infectionate. Or, infectious, you know, yeah, I know yeah, what infectious. you're talking about. Yeah. It's infectious. There you go. That's what I'm looking for. Yeah, absolutely. It's Our, a good my, thing that's infectious. Absolutely. <laughs> there you go. No pun intended, if that is a pun, technically. But all right, I guess. Uh, oh, also, Mike, I don't know if I've said this already, but you know, um, Luce coming on to talk about his new book. I do have a few copies of his book to give away, so. Please continue to use the hashtag Naked Bible out there uh, and help promote the podcast, and I will reach out to you. So with that. Well, we, we might as well. Yeah, let's just jump into it. Well, we're thrilled to have Dr. Professor uh, Utterer of Profundities, Louis <laughs> Marcos, back on the podcast with us. And Louis, for those who have not caught your first two interviews... Why don't you introduce yourself uh, again? Because, you know, we, we always get new listeners. And so why don't you introduce yourself real briefly, who you are, where you teach, what you teach, and then we'll get into this new book that you have. Hey, thanks, Mike. Third time's a charm, as they say. My name's Lou Marcos, and I'm a professor of English and scholar in residence at Houston Baptist University in Houston, Texas. I'm in my 30th year teaching. Uh, my sort of PhD specialty were the Romantic and Victorian poets, and I've written on them. 
but I also do anything that has to do with ancient Greece and Rome, and also anything to do with C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien, and even do film. Uh, and, and again, I'm sort of a renaissance man, and I really make C.S. Lewis my model, not only as an apologist, but he's my mole model as an English professor, as, as a generalist who wants to make lots of connections and synthesize things. I've even written a couple children's novels. I know you've written some novels, Michael. Uh, Mike, I, I decided you, you really need to approach these things from all different angles. Mm-hmm. And actually, my birthday last year, which is January 22nd, so it's almost been a year, uh, one of my students gave me a copy of your Unseen Realm book for my birthday. And she said, I know you're going to love this. And of course, I wrote it and read it. And, you know, I wrote a review and compared it to uh, J.R.R. Tolkien's Lord of the Rings. And then I heard from you and we went ahead and we did our first uh, podcast on Lord of the Rings yeah. and the amazing connection, especially the Silmarillion. Um, and that sort of led to the second podcast on Milton's Paradise Lost. And where is Milton getting these ideas and how much he shaped our understanding of angels and devils and heaven and hell and the whole cosmic thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and this time, the third time we're getting together, I've got a new book out from Classical Academic Press called The Myth Made Fact, Reading Greek and Roman Mythology Through Christian Eyes. And mm-hmm. like you, Mike, I'm somebody that loves to draw from antiquity. And, you know, it used to be that evangelicals like myself, they were a little bit nervous about pagan things and stuff like that and thought sure. they would go astray. But I really believe that the more we study these things and the more we understand the culture, because, you know, God chose to become incarnate in this Greco-Roman world. So the more we know about that world, I think the more we're going to understand not only the gospel, but the, the fuller plan, you know, the, the whole, you know, as you call it, the whole supernatural realm of this. And one of the entry points into my book and, and into this discussion, Mike, uh, is something you talk about often in your books, and that's Genesis 6, when the sons of uh, God and the daughters of men uh, came together and gave birth to the Nephilim. And it actually says in Genesis that these were the heroes of old. Now, mm-hmm. whether that literally means they're Hercules and Theseus and Jason, I don't know, but it certainly suggests a sort of connection between those. And I think yeah, the more I... we understand it, uh, the fuller we're going to get this whole biblical picture. Yeah, that that is probably the easiest point of intersection to see. I mean, on on my end, you know, I have to remind the audience because we this is this is going to reference a, an interview we did, or we as uh, in terms of me, I'm using the editorial we there with <laughs> Gerald McDermott. Uh, but but my exposure to was there anybody in early Christian studies that was at all in tune with? you know, really an ancient biblical worldview, uh, especially, you know, since, you know, to be fair, I'm, I wasn't so much asking myself that when it came to, you know, the Old Testament, the Israelites and the ancient Near East, I was really asking it about, well, what about the people who inherited that worldview, the Hellenistic, you know, intertestamental second temple Jewish period, you know, I mean, who in the church fathers, in the, in the, you know, the second, third, fourth century, was anybody reading that stuff? Was anybody sort of grasping the original context, not only for the New Testament, but for a lot of things that, of course, go from the old and bleed into the new? And and really, it was it was negative. It, there was sort of a negative context. You could see sort of people rejecting you know specific things. You know, after the time of Augustine, you know, earlier, you know, there were you know Tertullian, Irenaeus. I mean, they, Justin Martyr. They they understood what the context for a lot of these things were, but 
you know, I thought, well, when those guys are gone, you know, that, that was pretty much the end of the story. But but that wasn't really true. And, and Gerald McDermott, we had on, um, wrote a book called God's Rivals. And really, there, I got it was put on my radar because he references uh, my work on the Divine Council in that book. And then somebody alerted me to that. And then I went and checked it out. And, and really, the book is about how the, the early church had this discussion, you know, about, hey, what do we do with you know, pagan religious ideas, pagan texts, because some of it is clearly antithetical to, you know, the, the, the truth of the gospel, the story of Jesus, the, the biblical meta narrative. But but then there are other parts that are like, wow, it it really there's some striking similarities here. And so there was this huge discussion over what that meant, like like how to how to parse that, the, the similarities and the differences that because they were both there. And here, you know, along you come, you know, with this book. And I, I want to get into sort of the, pre- the prefatory material and the introduction because you point out and, and others who wrote the preface and the foreword point out that, you know, what, what Lou is doing here actually is a modern version. It, it, you're, you're, you're sort of the, the current uh, installment of a long tradition within the church of not wholesale turning your back on, you know, pagan material in this case the greco-roman material uh and, and you're right that that is sort of the evangelical reflex but rather there's been, been this long, long tradition yeah. you know early on of well maybe these similarities are there because god graciously mediated truth you know to these people and, and they they got it wrong or they rejected parts of it or whatever but there are elements here that can be found in these religions and in these texts that later on, you know, post-Jesus, the apostles and others are going to use to build bridges and to win them over. So, like, maybe that was intentional. There's this whole discussion. And you're, I really you know, do you're think in that tradition. We, 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 we've been uh, emailing Mike this week, getting ready for this uh, podcast, and I mentioned one of my very favorite writers is a man named Don Richardson, died a few years mm-hmm. ago. And he's famous for The Peace Child and for yeah, another book called yeah. Eternity in Their Hearts. And he, when he was in, uh, you know, again, these sort of inaccessible places, um, Papua New Guinea and places like that, he was looking for what he called redemptive analogies. Mm-hmm. He believed that if he looked hard enough, he would find that oh. flickering candle, something that God wrote in their hearts. That a lot of times it was unbelievably twisted. Like I was when I was reading The Peace Child, uh, most of us know about The Peace Child, this idea that one tribe would give the son of their, their king over to the other king. And as long as that child was alive, there was peace between that. So literally, Jesus was God's peace child. But he tells another horrible, ugly ritual that these pagans did, where after somebody died, They stood there by the body and could have watched it decay and sort of put their hands in it. It was horrendous, but there was just this little flickering shadow of this sense or desire for a resurrection of the body. Mm-hmm. And when he saw this, he was able to show them the truth. And so, you know, we've got to be prepared, uh, Mike, to be shocked a little bit sometimes, because a lot of times, you know, this this little reflection uh, can be kind of twisted and kind of scary and bloody and violent and things like that. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, we, we always talk about Acts chapter 17, the uh, Paul at the Areopagus, but a little bit earlier, I think it's uh, chapter 14, is when Paul says to another audience, 
God did not leave himself without witness. He did not leave himself without a testimony. Mm-hmm. It's there. Sometimes it's there in nature, in creation, and our conscience. But it's also there in, in these stories. And we, I think it's up to us to try to learn how to read these stories. Because, Mike, we talked, I think, a little bit about this when we talked about Paradise Lost and Milton, that there's always, when, when you see a connection, as we're going to see uh, in this podcast, there's always four ways to read it. One way is to say it's a coincidence and forget about it. But we wouldn't be having this discussion if we thought everything was a coincidence, okay? Mm-hmm. Um, so there's, there's three other ways to read it. One is that it's a demonic deception. And some of those early church fathers, Justin Martyr and all, often just said, this is a demonic deception. Other times, they say, and this is a more modern thing, that, well, it's just proof that Christianity, too, is only a myth, and it's the Hebrew or Jewish uh, Christian version of a myth. But in between is that reading that says, no, that in a very shadowy way, God was preparing the heart of these pagan people for the coming of the true gospel. So they were being prepared. (laughs) The the trajectory actually makes sense if you sort of, if you're going to assign any validity to the biblical story. You know, let's just think about Genesis 1 through 11. I mean, Genesis gives us this picture that originally the people of the world, you know, whoever they were, scattered wherever they were, and, and so on and so forth, they believed in that there was a one true God. I mean, they, right. you know, they obviously believe in you know other animate beings and a supernatural world that's heavily populated and all this kind of stuff that we talk about in the podcast all the time. But they had a sense for what you might call original, you know, monotheism. In other words, there's one right. deity that's above it all. It created it all, all the rest and all that. And then, you know, when, when you get past Babel, that deteriorates because of the judgment of Babel and the fragmentation of the nations. And then, you know, if you're going with biblical chronology, a couple hundred years, you know, pass and, and we have Abraham and his his parents are idolaters. Like, where'd that come from? Right. You know, so so you have this notion of of truth. You have these these ideas that are true, and then they get lost or distorted or perverted or, or whatever it is, you know, inverted. And then, you know, history sort of moves along, and then you get the fulfillment of the plan of the true God in in Christ. Right. And then on the other side of Christ, then, you know, you, you can look back at the pagan world as the gospel expands, you know, to the Gentile, to the nations, to these, these nations in which, in great antiquity, had truth. And well, it's still embedded there. <laughs> okay, it's still, it I mean, it's fragmented and embedded. And so you, you, could, you could see, like, well, this, we should sort of expect these remnants, these vestiges these ideas to be there. And then, then it's up to the apostles again, to be led or, you know, either figure out or led, I think both, you know, by the spirit to, to latch on to these things and use them to turn well, the see, Gentiles back. What, what, one of the things that we forget is that evolution is not just a scientific theory. It is a worldview. Mm-hmm. A lot of Christians don't realize that in the academy, the evolutionary mindset or paradigm or worldview has invaded everything. So yeah, it's we not, have it's, just it's taken it's going to it reject an original monotheism. You know, when you apply, yeah. you know, evolution like to anthropology, right? Exactly. You know, anthropology so, well, of religion. It's very, yeah. it's very much opposite. Yeah. Well, what they say basically is we all started as a bunch of animists running around in the woods, and we right. slowly evolved to, you know, polytheism, pantheism, up to Christianity, then up to science, of course, right? 
Um, but actually, what the record shows is the opposite, not evolution, but entropy. We started as monotheists and fell away. And what Don Richardson found and documented in Eternity in Their Hearts, that second book I mentioned, is that there are scattered tribes where he found they still had a memory of monotheism, but they were afraid. They knew that they'd somehow had, you know, broken with that one God, and now they were terrified of the spirits or, you know, they, that, that were tormenting them and were afraid, but they still had that concept of monotheism deep, were, deep down. Were you the one who recommended to me uh, when Corduan's book, In the Beginning God, was that you? Oh, I, I, I could. I, it wasn't me. I have to okay, then it was some. No, Art. You know what? Now that I now that I said it, it was some. It was a, a listener that I met at uh, at ETS not last year because it was virtual, but the year before that. Yeah, that Winifred Cordron, who's a, a he was a, a philosopher. He's you know PhD in philosophy, professor of philosophy, and a, and a Christian. But he actually wrote a book. I have it. I haven't read read it yet. But it's called In the Beginning: A Fresh Look at the Case for huh. Original Monotheism. Oh, so wow. so basically, he argues the same point, and and you know I, I bring this up for the sake of the listener because the idea that these pagans and and they're certainly you know pagan in their theology, okay, they they have they have nuggets of truth, but but a lot of distortions and, and just you know false teaching. Right. But the idea that embedded in that are the vestiges of things that are true, and then as they write about their belief system and, and how they view the gods and who they worship and how this and that happened, you know, it, it, trying to, you know, you, you know, explaining the world as the way it is in light of, you know, these supernatural characters and so on, how they conceive that they can't help, <laughs> but, but draw some of these things into their own literature, their own, their own way of talking about this thing. And so someone sitting on the other side and looking back on that, looking at their literature, knowing what the truth is, it's like, oh, yeah, I, you know, here's something, here's something that's very, you're on to something here, Mr. Pagan. But let's, let's think about that. Let's talk about that. And then we'll talk about Jesus and so on and so forth. That, that whole enterprise is not new. Again, you're no, just trying to back. revive it. Yeah. And, and, you know, because I'm writing a book on the early church right now as we're, as we're talking here. And one of the things I found reading Justin Martyr, Tatian, Athenagoras are all second century apologists, is that they also wonder about things. Let's just give you an example. One of the things the early apologists remind their pagan audience again and again is that Moses is much, much older than all the Greco-Roman wisdom. He's older than Homer, Plato, all of them. But they're never quite sure, does that mean that, you know, Homer and all the other great poets and philosophers, did they actually have access to the Torah? Were they quoting it somehow? Or was it just a general revelation? And they kind of go back and forth. Yeah. They also do the same waffling, not because they're indecisive, because they're trying to figure out, just like we are right here as we're talking. They also notice some of the links between paganism and Christianity, and sometimes they do treat it as a demonic deception, but sometimes they treat it as a, a preparatio evangelium, as a sort of pagan yeah. preparation for the gospel, right, the evangel that comes. It's providentially there it is. So let's right. let's get let let's use that foothold, you know, to to steer them back back home. Essentially, I want to read just for a, a, for the audience again. There are just a couple slices from again the the forward the prefatory material. Um, there, there's just some interesting things that stuck out to me. Um, the example of, of Orpheus, okay? Pagans had their myth of Orpheus descending to the underworld and playing music so beautiful that it compelled Hades 
to release one of the souls he held captive. And here's the, the line. Is it any surprise that the Greeks and Romans saw Christ as the fulfillment of such a story? The one who sets us all free from the bonds of death, the true Orpheus, the mega Orpheus, if you will, the myth made fact. And then there's another uh, quotation about how medieval Christians believed that the coming of Christ was the fulfillment of pagan yearnings and longings. Right. Not not pagan theology, but but just this right. these things that you read their literature and you know they're looking for. And, and you know we've talked about this before in terms of the modern world about how you know humans still they still yearn for a world that is not the chaotic mess that this one is. You know, this, right. this hunger for utopia, this hunger for justice, this hunger for, you know, setting things straight and so on and so forth. And, of course, the, their answer is always, you know, well, here's how we do it without God in the picture. <laughs> right. But, but the impulse is the point, not the solution. The impulse right. is the point. It's there. You know, and you, in your introduction, you you talk about some some you know art like Michelangelo, and yeah. you look at some of these the Sistine Chapel, and how you can pick out the the, the biblical images, but if you if you don't have an eye trained for the classical, you know the, the, the pagan images, they're mixed in there. So like, they like are. there's there's an amalgam in in Michelangelo's Christian art. We'll say we'll just use that term for the sake of the discussion right. here. But there's an amalgam within the, the clearly biblical themes of of this pagan stuff. And so it's like, why is he doing that? Well, could it possibly be that he thought, well, these two things are related, even though they're different? You know, now, the, again, the, the, the modern evangelical impulse is to say, well, you know, Michelangelo must have wanted to, you know, to, to destroy you know, the, yeah. the Christian. You know, he wanted to, to, well, to throw pagan it, stuff it, in it there to pervert starts. it. Maybe it's the other way around. Maybe we have yeah. the cart before the horse or something. No, like that. W- one of the things that C.S. Lewis, you know, he's, he's, he's my role model too as an English professor, is one of the things he fought. He tried to convince people that, this is his phrase, the Renaissance never happened. Now, what did he mean by that? What he means by that is we still have this idea that the modern world, and of course the secular humanist progressive world, that it began in the Renaissance. It didn't. It began in the Enlightenment. The Renaissance is still very much in continuity with the classical and medieval world. And as he says, take any Renaissance man from Shakespeare to, to Galileo to, to any of them, to Michelangelo, they have much more in common with a medieval like Dante or even a pagan like Plato or Aristotle than they have in common with uh, Kant or Hume or, or, or Darwin or Freud or Nietzsche or any of those people. Mm-hmm. And wh- why is this important? Because in Michelangelo, we are not getting somehow a rejection of the Christian, but we're getting the full fusion, the full synthesis. When we think of the Sistine Chapel, there's two important things in terms of our conversation today. First, the main frescoes along the spine of the ceiling, notice they're all Genesis 1 to 11. So he, he decides to focus on God's work amongst all mankind before he narrows it down to, uh, to uh, before we uh, get Abraham. Yeah. Abraham. So it's all, it's actually even, even pre-Babel. It's really creation, fall, and the flood. That's the focus, right? So again, this, this is the God working in all the nations. And then around them are those gigantic frescoes of all the major Old Testament prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Daniel, etc. But interspersed between the Old Testament prophets are the Greek and Roman sibyls, okay? The, the prophetesses. What are they doing there? Well, they too 
are bearing witness, but in a much lesser way, and usually in an unconscious way. And yet, God is using them to prepare the pagan world for the coming of, as your own poets have said, we are his yeah. offspring. That's Acts chapter 17. I mean, for, for our audience, I think an easy illustration, and, and please indulge me, I'm, I'm not comparing my little book to Michelangelo. <laughs> <laughs> but, but when I wrote the, the little book about the world turned upside down, the gospel, you know, finding the gospel in stranger things, this is, this is all I'm doing. It's like I I know the biblical meta narrative, and so I watch the show, and I see embedded within the show unconsciously. I don't think they're doing anything deliberately Christian in, in Stranger Things. You know, the creators, and the producers, right. and the directors, but but they can't help tell the story that they're telling without these elements that are embedded. And and I'm I'm just cherry picking. I'm cherry picking the show and saying, okay. Here's this idea. Here's this scene. It's part of this narrative. It's part of this trajectory in the story, this plot of the subplot. Isn't it, isn't it awesome how that same trajectory is found over here in the, in the biblical story? You know, that, that's all I'm doing. And, and so this is what the early church was doing with, you know, they don't, they don't have Netflix. Okay. You know, they, 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 have, they have the writings of the classical authors and they're reading this stuff, and they're going, okay, okay, I, I see what you're tracking on here. You get a little lost, but the thought you're tracking on is significant, and we have no, the answer and, to this. And, and it's not just Michelangelo. The earliest Christian art is what we see on the walls of the catacombs where they mm -hmm. buried their dead. Mm -hmm. And on the walls of the catacombs, we see some images of Christ as if he were Orpheus, which you mentioned a moment ago, because he's the true Orpheus. He is the one whose music saved us, but, but he's better than Orpheus because Orpheus looked back and Eurydice was dragged back down into Hades. Yeah. But our Savior does not look back, right? He, he truly saves us. And, and you know, remember, that's quite literal. Uh, in the old Apostles' Creed, he descended yeah. into hell. The idea that Christ broke down the doors of hell and reached out his hands and rescued the righteous See, that, people that, of the Old that's, Testament. That's an interesting example because a Jew would look at that and think Enoch for obvious reasons. <laughs> That's a good point, but, yeah. a, but a Gentile, okay, yeah. and a Gentile might know Enoch, but, it, but a Gentile is going to know the Orpheus story. Yeah. So it, 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 it's like a different, a different entry point to the same destination. You know, and the, and the, and the New Testament says, hey, you, you know, I don't, we don't really care what door you come in as long as you wind up yeah, you know, at there this we go. destination. There you go. You know, it, it, they would also know that the great Hercules, their greatest hero, descended into the underworld and defeated Cerberus, the three-headed dog of hell. It was one of his 12 labors and grabbed him uh, you know, by the collar and took him up. So, I mean, they, 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 they know this. I mean, it, it's, it's amazing. And, and the best way I think we can understand the classic world is that the one biblical figure in the Old Testament who is the most like a Greek hero is, is Samson, right? He even dies as a suicide. I mean, I guess it depends how you want to say suicide, but he, he, he is the Hercules of, of the ancient world, right? He's, he's gifted with this strength, and in one moment he's righteous, then he gets impulsive, and he goes crazy the other way, and yet uh, still, in the end, he is, you know, rewarded, because the belief was that Hercules burned himself to death on the pyre, but then he was taken up to Mount Olympus. He was deified, in a sense, apotheosized. Um, yeah, so they, I mean, they, they, and that example gets talked about a lot in, uh, Old, Te in Old Testament scholarship with judges, you know. And, yeah. and the discussion goes, as you can imagine, you know, 
it, it could go both ways. You know, it's a chicken or egg right. problem. But but the similarities are are the, the point that's obvious. Well, you know, Mike, there's a difference, and one thing I always tell my students: there's a difference between data and the interpretation of data, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And the the best example of that is, and I don't know, we might have talked about this in an earlier podcast, but you, you, you go to a, take a social studies class in a regular public school in America, sixth grade, you read the Epic of Gilgamesh. It's got this wonderful flood story. Then your teacher, trained in secular humanism, says, see, children, we now know that every single ancient culture has a story of a universal flood. Therefore, the Bible is nothing but a myth. And even as a kid, I thought, you know, there's another way to read this evidence, okay? If everyone, you know, maybe there was one, and maybe only amongst the Jews does it retain some historical validity. Uh, and, and again, or, or another one that I like to use is what's called homology, the fact that the bend of a man's arm and the, the bat wing and the dorsal fin of a fish all have the same basic design. And some people look at that and say, proof of Darwinian evolution. I say, I look at it and say, proof of common design, right? Why, why does a designer keep reinventing the right angle, you know? So yeah, it, it, these, a these lot things of are, especially as as they're taught. I mean, and I'm look. I'm not going to say that every public school teacher who handles this material has some sinister motive, okay? Because no, they're 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 so locked into we got to get through this content this day or I'm in trouble, you know, kind of thing. But okay, having said that, you know, try, you know, giving them the benefit of the doubt because I have a lot of people in my family who teach in public school and and they would they would be in lockstep with what you're saying here. Yeah. But it, but it's a classic either or fallacy, and that's the way a lot of things are, are presented right. to kids, especially, um, you know, because they don't they don't have either the time to discuss or the teacher either isn't comfortable discussing it or, or really isn't prepared to discuss it. But you get these classic either or fallacies. See, here's this, and there's only one way to look at the you know right. you, you know you either embrace something that's you know, true or false. You know, like there's nothing, there's no way to nuance anything. It's this right. or that. And it's really unfortunate, you know, now this is actually a good, a good pivot point because what we've been talking about is one thing of two, as, as I, you know, reading through your book, as I sort of categorize things, one of two things, as far as your goals, you know, one is to, to, to get into the reader's head and, you know, for the most part, this is going to be, and I, I would like to talk about who the specific target audience is too. So we'll throw that in here, but for the most part, you're probably going to have Christian readers here. Um, either homeschool or reading themselves, they're, they're interested or curious. And you want to, to fix in their minds, look, this is not only a legitimate discussion, but it's a really old one. You know, your, your forefathers in the church did this all the time, trying to look at this material and, and, and looking for truth nuggets and using that as a bridge to have these conversations about the bigger truth. Okay. But the other thing that, that, that you, you know, hit on as, as you go through the episodes and you have questions at the end of each one is virtue. And you have a, you actually have a prefatory section on, you know, a note on virtue. Uh, and so you talk about, about that, that, you know, basically you, 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 you reduce it to, you know, several, you know, time tested virtues. And in, in sort of in the secular world, you have, you have four, what you call classical or cardinal virtues, courage, self-control, wisdom, and justice. And then there's three Christian or theological virtues of faith, hope, and love. So what, what, you're, what you're essentially saying is that these stories are going to contain the classical virtues, and they're, they're also going to be bridge points in these other you know, virtues that, that, that get you into theological discussion. So can you talk a little bit about just 
the way you approach, you know, virtue. I mean, as an Old Testament theologian, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you, this is how, and I don't want to steal your thunder here, but this is how we are taught in grad school to think about wisdom literature, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon. You're, you're taught that that this is, in a secular context, you're taught, well, this just reflects common sense that everybody basically has. Everyone, Every functional human being is going to be able to pick up Proverbs, whether they're Jewish or not, and, and see the, the wisdom, just practical living in it. And that's true. But theologically, it's like a form of common grace you know, that, 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 that God Im- embeds within the human, with humans in, in, in what they are common sense and, and, and wisdom principles that are just going to work out in life. So talk a, a little bit about your, your goals it, as far as virtue. It really is. One of the reasons I enjoyed writing this book is that I kind of saw it as a sequel to two different books I wrote. One is called From Achilles to Christ, Why Christians Should Read the Pagan Classics. And that's the part of this book where I'm tracing the connections between the Greek mythology and Christian truth. But it's also, in a way, a sequel to a book I wrote called On the Shoulders of Hobbits, The Road to Virtue with Tolkien and Lewis. And in that book, I showed how you know elements of the Chronicles of Narnia and the Lord of the Rings are teaching us those seven virtues that we just talked about. Mm-hmm. And so I'm also taking that approach to sort of winding them together, because I love classical Christian schools. I speak for them all the time. Both of my kids are teaching classical schools now. And one thing about classical schools is they not only have restored the canon, the full, you know, Greco-Roman, Judeo-Christian canon, they've also restored the idea of an education in virtue. Now, it's really, really tricky, and this is why I added that note on virtue in the beginning, uh, in the preface to the book. I used to think, as a lot of Christians think, that the problem with the public schools is that they had thrown out virtue. That's not exactly true, I discovered. It almost might have been better if they threw it out, because then there would be a void and people would seek after it. Instead what they've done... Else in its place. <laughs> right, exactly. They've substituted with what I would call phony virtues or pseudo-virtues or values. And they still teach values in school, but as far as I can tell, there's only five of them. Inclusivism, egalitarianism, multiculturalism, environmentalism. These are the ones that, that are taught and I'm not saying those things are bad. I mean, it's certainly good to be tolerant, but those things have never been the center of virtue. And so what you do is, you it's like junk food. It sort of fills you up, but it has no real nutritional value. But because you're full, you're not seeking after the good fruits and vegetables or whatever. And always, and this is, this is why I wrote On the Shoulder of Hobbits and why I wrote this book too, people need to understand that until the modern period, the way you taught virtue, the best, most effective way of passing down the real virtues to our children is through stories, by telling them stories. And that's why another book I wrote called uh, Restoring Beauty about C.S. Lewis, I began by critiquing the movie Shrek. Now, I do enjoy Shrek. I mean, it is funny. It's funny the way it makes fun of Disney. But I don't like Shrek because it's part of these whole new politically correct fairy tales and that is really destructive, right? If we, if we start screwing with our fairy tales and our myths to teach kids crazy politically correct ideas, then we're robbing them from the chief way. Uh, you know, uh, uh, Bill Bennett, uh, who used to be the, uh, yeah. the Department of Education, Secretary of Education, yeah. wrote a great book a while back now called um, 
what was it called? Uh, <laughs> yeah, I, uh, you I know, know what I'm talking about. I know what you, uh, it was actually, it was on Virtue. Let me, I mean, it was right. Oh my gosh, I can't believe it. Just, the, the, I'll the come book up of with Virtue the title that, here in a second. It, it'll, it'll come oh, up yeah, in the book a second. of Virtues. The Book of Virtues, that's what it was called. Yeah. And what he right did in, in that. Of our face. Yeah, right there, Book <laughs> of Virtue, right? What he did is he told stories, both from the Bible, but also Greco-Roman myth and legend, everything like that, to illustrate virtues. And when the book came out, it was, it was, it was a bestseller. And the yeah, funny yeah, thing yeah. about it is, it was a great book, Mike, but if that book came out 150 years ago, people would say, duh, that's what we're already doing. But because we've forgotten the proper way of teaching virtue, he had to write that book, and thank God that he did. Um, and so, again, just a quick example. Uh, the, the cover of my book, and they did a beautiful job illustrating this book. The cover is the story of Daedalus and Icarus, right? And I think most people listening know that story. Uh, Daedalus and Icarus have been imprisoned in the labyrinth, the very labyrinth that Daedalus, Daedalus invented. And the only way to escape was to fly because there was a window, but it overlooked a cliff going down to the water. Only way to escape. And so Daedalus, the great inventor, made wooden frames. He took uh, feathers from birds. He used wax to affix the feathers. And he created wings so that he and his son could fly to freedom and safety. But, of course, he told his son, now, son, listen to me. Don't fly too low or the water will make your wings heavy. Don't fly too high or the sun will melt the wax. Keep a middle course. But once they started flying, young person, Icarus, forgot all about that, enjoyed things. He went flying up and down, and he got so high that the sun melted the wax, the feathers fell off, and he plunged to his death. Now, what we're learning is self-control or temperance. But... What I like about this story, uh, Mike, and, and what I want to emphasize is here is a pagan story that can teach Christians something. Because too often we as Christians think about God's moral law as something that's a killjoy that wants to stop us from having joy or fun or happiness. When in fact, no, God's law is there to protect us. We have to remember that the law you know, the Torah, the law was not given to a group of freemen to turn them into slaves. It was given to a group of former slaves to make them freemen. Without the law of Moses, the Jews would have been I mean, already. They wanted to go back to the flesh pots of Egypt. So mm-hmm. what I'm saying is that by meditating on these stories, I'm not only learning the virtue again, I'm learning that virtue is a positive thing and not a negative thing. It's there to protect me from disaster. And a lot of the great myths that I cover in the book are cautionary tales, very much like the wisdom literature of the Bible, of the Proverbs and things like that. We learn from those stories. Yeah, or, or, or parables or allegories. You know, yeah. I mean, it's very obvious Scripture does this too. Well, you, you brought up Daedalus and Icarus. Uh, you're, you're right after that because it's, you know, kind of similar is uh, Phaethon and the Chariot of the Sun. So we'll talk about that one a little bit. That, that Good. that's probably and, a story and, that the audience will will may be familiar with. Good, and, and thank you for pronouncing it right. You know these words. One of the things I I insisted, and, and the publisher agreed, is that I, I you know I, I start each chapter by retelling the story as if I'm a storyteller. But what I did is embedded in the story is the pronunciation guide. Kind of like the old King James that's, mm-hmm. you know, self-pronunciating, I think it's called. Uh, yeah. Because I find that a lot of kids, especially like homeschoolers, they're big readers, 
But then when they start talking to you, you don't know what they're talking about because they don't know how to pronounce these words. And of course they don't. You know, you, the, the book doesn't talk to you, right? So I've really made sure that all the names, and, and when I put in the pronunciation guide, Mike, I don't use the ridiculous pronunciation guide they use in the dictionary. Nobody knows what that means. I right, use well, you know, something that, yeah, yeah well, forget, forget all that nonsense. I do it, and, you know, and, and, and if, if, it, if it's supposed to be accented, you put it in capital letters and all that sort of stuff. You make it, so Fayathon, I'm teaching that by writing F-A-Y in big letters, then E, then T-H-O-N. Then you could actually pronounce it, right? I want people to, because a lot of people are afraid to speak up because they're afraid they'll mispronounce a word. <laughs> I found that with my first book, Louis Agonistes. I, I think that was a mistake on my part. I love that title, but nobody wanted to push it because they were afraid they'd mispronounce the word Agonistes, right? But anyway, so, Theathon, wonderful story, and you're right, I, I, I kind of treat it as a companion uh, to... Uh, Daedalus and Icarus, another young man who is actually the son of the sun, Helios, the sun god. Uh, and he wants to know for sure that he is the son of the sun. And so the sun does something very foolish. He says, all right, son, anything you ask me, I'll give you. Watch out for rash oaths. You remember the story of Jephthah who told God, I'll sacrifice the first thing that comes into my house, and it turns out to be his daughter, right? And then Saul does the same thing when he says, Anybody that eats before this battle is going to die. And then, of course, uh, as we all remember the story, yeah, uh, uh, son Jonathan uh, puts some honey in his eyes bright, right? And he, he gets away with it because Saul's the king. But anyway, so don't make foolish vows, first of all. Don't swear by the river Styx. And the boy says, I want to ride your cherry. And he says, don't do it, son. You, you can't you know, control these horses. But he foolishly goes ahead, and at first he does well. But as they reach the sort of arc of the sky, the horses start recognizing the weakness of the charioteer, and they start madly going up and down and up and down, burning everything, destroying the constellations, until finally Zeus just has to zap Phaethon, and he dies. <laughs> right? He did. He like Icarus, he wasn't able to keep that central course. You know what? What of course Aristotle would call the golden mean, the 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 mean, the middle way. Uh, he went to extremes and was too impulsive. And again, we see, you know, we, we do live in a world of cause and effect. Now, we do live in a fallen world, so sometimes it seems the ways of sinners prosper and whatnot, but we still do live in a world where choices have consequences, and, and we need to, to realize that. I, I don't know, of course, I, I love the old cartoons, but maybe they're not great, because when I grew up watching The Roadrunner and Wiley Coyote, every time Wiley Coyote died, he popped up to life in the next cartoon. What's that all about? I'm not sure what we're teaching kids. Right? <laughs> yeah, well, that, now you're dating me too. <laughs> I still love. Sort of grew up on Looney Tunes, you know, and the Three yeah. Stooges, but we won't. We don't want to talk about that. So, <laughs> how about how about another? Here's another one that uh, a lot of listeners will be familiar with: uh, Prometheus. Let's talk about oh, Prometheus. Great, great story, and he's just he's just everywhere. Right? Prometheus uh, was a titan who who loved mankind and. Zeus was kind of holding us in thrall and slavery. And what Prometheus did is, to help man, he stole the fire from the gods, the secret of fire from the gods, and gave it to man. And because he did that, Zeus was enraged, and he punished him by chaining him to a rock up in the Caucasus Mountains. And there he was, naked, chained to the rock, crucified to the rock, and every morning, a giant eagle, or sometimes it's a vulture, came and devoured his liver. But then every night, the liver grew back so that it could be devoured all over again. 
Now, Mike, a lot of people think that equals a myth, but it's not. It actually exists. It's called the IRS, okay? So just remember that. <laughs> devours all our money, gives it a year to grow back, and devours it again. So sometimes there's truth to myths. But what, what I find fascinating about Prometheus, right, is that he is a very odd mixture of both Satan and Christ, in a way. Yeah. He's yeah. a satanic figure in the sense that he has rebelled against Zeus, against Jupiter. But at the same time, he is a Christ figure because he's literally being crucified on behalf of man. And interestingly, in the end, Prometheus was, was saved and the chain that chained him was broken by Hercules, probably the greatest Christ figure who is literally the son of Zeus. So all of these stories come together. And Prometheus has a lot of... Okay, we need to understand that when Prometheus stole the fire, even the ancient Greeks understood this, fire not only means keep you warm at night, keep away the wild animals, cook your food. Fire is also the crucible of creativity. Without fire, you don't have pottery. You know, they're basically technology, right? So the reason I, I mentioned that it's important is that the fire not only represents power, if you will, the fire represents knowledge. And it often represents a forbidden kind of knowledge. And so Prometheus also becomes a type of the overreacher who steals forbidden knowledge and, and pays a terrible price for it. Whether we call that guy Darth Vader, or we call him Dracula, right? or we call him Dr. Frankenstein, uh, or we call him Dr. Jekyll, he's that overreacher who seeks after a wisdom not meant from him, and it ends up cutting him off from his fellow man and yeah, isolating him. The whole discussion of Prometheus, you know, and you, you more or less just summarize what you have in the, in the book. But, it, I mean, this is a myth that gets drawn on a lot in science fiction, okay? And, and, and I, I wish at this point, you know, again, if, if uh, I was at HBU and I was teaching, you know, theology class and you were on the faculty too, I said, you know what we're going to do? We're going to assign our, our respective classes. Uh, they, they have to watch the movie Prometheus, which is, you know, the... the the, oh, oh, you mean the one the with, the, one with the, the sequel, the prequel aliens. to Aliens, okay? Oh, right, right. Because because in that movie, it blends it it blends um, Christology yeah. with Satan. I mean, in, in in a Prometheus figure, okay? I mean, it'll 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 actually blend birth imagery from the Gospels that you would associate with Jesus and a few other things. The woman, you know, the the main character, uh, I think, right. is. Elizabeth, she has red hair. So you get some Gnostic Christology in there with Jesus' bloodline mythology. Oh, that's but, right. That's but, right, yeah. But the whole thing, is, it tracks on the Promethean story. And and again, you're, you're left at the end Well, like, who's the hero? You know, is this good or evil? You know what I mean? There's this, right. there's this muddying of of the waters, you know, of, of, of clarity on this point. Of course, Ridley Scott wants to steer people. There's... I could go on and on and on on this because there, there's there's actually stuff. I don't know if it's on the internet anymore, but right after the movie, I found uh, an, an article on his on Ridley Scott's original script and stuff that got taken out. Oh, okay, and and how Jesus was actually one of the spawn of the engineers, and you know you have the whole. Oh my gosh! It's just unbelievable. Well, you know, that didn't make it into the movie, but it tells you where where Scott's mind is. It tells you where he's headed. But, but here's the funny thing, and I don't know if you're kind of getting at this, Mike, but sometimes. 
the real archetypes, the real meta narrative, the real myth is so strong, sometimes it forbids them from trying to destroy it. And I'll give you a perfect <laughs> example of this. This is Star Trek, uh, Star Wars Episode 3, right? And if you remember, there's a scene where, where George Lucas thought, oh, let me be real liberal, and he has the, the, the bad guy, he has the, you know, the evil emperor say, you're either for me or against me. Right. In other words, he's like he's trying to make fun of George Bush because he said something like that. Right. And he says something where the good guys say, well, you know what? The Sith are always given to absolutist thinking. So it's like George Lucas is trying to be politically correct and say absolutist thinking is the cause of all evil. As if he's Chris Hitchens or somebody. But if you listen carefully later on, when, you know, when Anakin is talking to the evil emperor about goodness and evil, he says, well, you know, those things are slippery categories. Okay. It is the good guys who are the absolutists. The bad guys are the relativists who have no sense of right or wrong. They just do whatever is expedient. So the funny thing is George Lucas tried to be politically correct, but the power of his story would not allow him to be so. Isn't that wonderful? (laughs) Yeah. yeah, it, it does. It does sort of double back on itself, you know, but it, I mean, what, what we're talking about here again, these things, if, if for no other reason, you know, to be acquainted with, you know, some of the main, you know, stories of, you know, Greco Roman mythology, they, they just get repurposed all the time. I mean, biblical stuff gets repurposed. Yeah. This stuff gets repurposed. Uh, you know, I, I hate to put it this way, but there's very little original imagination going on yeah. <laughs> in, in, you know, our entertainment media. They're, they're constantly looking back toward great stories and they, they, they largely come from these two pools, you know, at least in the West, you know, the Greco Roman classical tradition or the biblical tradition. And sometimes they try to force, you know, one into the other or they, you know, they, they dabble and, but you're right. When they sometimes when they do that, it just doubles back on them, you know, because they don't they don't quite have a handle on. <laughs> well, here, here's, here's another amazing because you know what I, what I like about you, Mike, is you know you and I are you know are willing to move from you know biblical stuff to popular culture because we know that popular culture is an expression of these very archetypes. And just yeah. a good example of this is you know the the biggest problem with environmentalism now is if it just means being a good steward of the environment, well, duh, that's Christianity. But a lot of times it's an actually anti-human thing. Human beings are the problem. It's that old book, The Population Bomb by Paul Ehrlich, right? Well, then we wait for, you know, that whole long arc that we've waited for about the Avengers, right? And what does the Avengers end with? It ends with the ultimate villain, Thanos, who is a, who does what most of these radical environmentalists would do if they could snap his finger and eliminate half the population of human beings. So it's, it's kind of amazing that all of a sudden, you know, very, very, you know, radical environmentalistic Hollywood turns around and shows us that the true villain is uh, Thanos, right? The one that is against humanity. Very strange. Another example of this um, that, uh, that shocked me. Oh, I was going to say it. Now I forgot what it was. Uh, but, you know, again, they, they try to do one thing, but it circles back on them because I guess there's an understanding of what is good and what is bad, what is right and what is wrong. We keep coming back to those stories because they are written into us. God has written eternity on the hearts of men, right, in Ecclesiastes. Uh, and, and then we said this before, it's it's not always 
knowledge in the sense of philosophical or theological knowledge worked out. It is a yearning, right? Well, what is it? Uh, Acts 17, uh, uh, from one man, God has created all the races, that they might reach after him and grope after him, though he is not far from any of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. As your own poets have said, we are his offspring. So we grope and yearn and reach. Oh, I, I remember, uh, it wasn't as very good, but did you see the movie uh, Dante's Inferno? That was the newest um, uh, a Dan Brown novel turned into a movie. No, no. Is that what it was okay. called? Well, yeah, I think it was called. I think it was called the Inferno or Dante. Maybe it's oh. just called the Inferno. Maybe yeah, it's just called no, Inferno. I seen it. And and anyway, in it, these crazy people are about to put something in the water supply that is going to kill off half the planet. Right now, here's the amazing thing. I haven't read the novel, but I went on IMDb and I wanted to see if it was the same as the novel, and I discovered that in the original Dan Brown novel. What's actually happening is the bad guys are putting something in the water that will sterilize half the population. Now, I know why Hollywood changed it, because there are a whole lot of people out there that would do that if they could. I don't think they'd be willing to kill half the population, but they'd love to sterilize as many people as they could. Uh, that's where Margaret Sanger started anyway. Um, so, again, it's, it's sort of amazing that Dan Brown right, ends up becoming this descender of humanity. Right, this yeah. crazy guy that writes the Da Vinci Code. I'll, uh, I'll tell you one, the... one that I'm wondering about. I don't know if we'll ever see it because of COVID. I don't, and I don't keep up enough with the what's going on in the Marvel universe and, and all this stuff as far as filming schedules. But you brought up Thanos, and and again, his solution. You know, you're you're right in in the characterization. Of course, then the, you know, the ensuing film, you know, has to reverse all that and so on and so forth. But in the, in the Marvel Universe, and this is hinted at in the second Guardians of the Galaxy at the end, when they, the, there's this character introduced, the, this, this creation of this character, Adam Warlock. Hmm. If, if, for those who are familiar with the, the Marvel Universe, the comic book series, Adam Warlock is an overt Christ figure. Oh, okay. So it, it made me wonder, okay, that this is, are they, are they going to loop back to Guardians and then address the Thanos thing from a different angle using a Jesus figure. You know what I mean? It, it's like, here we yeah. go again, where, where you, the, it's like they can't get away from it. And in, in this case, you know, the, the Marvel universe had a lot of this stuff in it because it's, again, it's, it's good storytelling. It's archetypes, you know, and, yeah. and whatnot. But, but the, the, the whole Adam Warlock thing for those you know who are, are into comic, comic books, this story was originally written by Jack Kirby, you know, who, you know, is responsible oh, for it, so much of this stuff. Right. But it was revised by another guy um, whose name was Roy Thomas. And he mm -hmm. was the one that sort of editorially presented Adam Warlock as a, as a, as a Messiah figure, as a Jesus huh. figure. I mean, that you can go look up on the internet, you know, and, and, and hear him talk about that. But again, the whole point is that it, it's like subverting itself. <laughs> Yeah. You know, the, yeah, well, the further I, they I, go in the storyline, they, they, they loop back and, and subvert themselves, you know, and, and, well, and, you know, modern use of some of these things, whether they be Greco-Roman or biblical, it, this, the truth kind of leaks out. <laughs> well, you know, it, it's it funny. And, and here's, here's a place where we can be discerning. If you read the Gospels, one time Jesus says, if they're not for us, they're against me. And the other time, if they're not against me, they're for me. And it just needs to be understood in the proper context. Right. What's the context? And I think that in many ways... How is it repurposed? How is that context right. either repurposed or, or subverted? Yeah. 
I mean, at, at, at the end of uh, the, 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 the Avengers, uh, what's his name? Iron Man becomes the perfect Christ figure. Yep, the, self- yep. sac- you know, the selfish, well, you know, rich guy becomes a Christ figure. He even has the I am line at the end. I am Iron Man, you know, in response to I am inevitable, what what Thanos, you know, talks about. That's right. You know, it, it, there's just a lot of that stuff, you know, that, that is done, you know, some of it might be intentional. Some of it is just unconscious. And I, I actually, you know, in in my book about the Stranger Things series, again, I think most of it is unconscious. There's, there might be one exception to this in my head, but, you know, to me that, that is even more interesting. And, and, and more noteworthy that these trajectories just can't be done away with. <laughs> they, they, well, they, you know, just Mike, there. the good example, and, and, you know, maybe this is not true. You would be the guy to tell me, but I'm sure you've been to a messianic Passover Seder. Yeah. Yeah. A long time and, ago, but yes. Yeah. Yeah. And as, as far as I know, this is the way that, you know, a lot of Jews still do it today. And yet the entire gospel is, embedded in what they're doing. It's unbelievable. They've got this this uh, thing that holds three pieces of matzah, and they pull out the second one, and they break it, and then they hide it, and then the kids find it, and it's brought back. I mean, it's just like a working mm-hmm. out of the crucifixion and resurrection, and it's, it's, it's being done you, even now by Jews. Yeah, it's interesting you mentioned that. We we haven't scheduled it yet, but but uh, we're going to have, you know, Lord willing, Seth Postel on the podcast who oh, is uh, an Old Testament scholar. He teaches in Israel. Um, and he's, you know, he's, he's a believer, messianic believer. But he, uh, last year he came out with a book, um, Reading Moses and Seeing Jesus. So it has a lot of that kind of stuff in it. You know, oh, and, and by the way, you should know that if you go to the Sistine Chapel, everybody's so impressed by the, the ceiling and also by the Last Judgment that you might miss it right, you know, closer to eye level underneath the ceiling are a series of great, great paintings by people like Botticelli and other great Renaissance people. Mm-hmm. And on one wall, it tells the life of Jesus, and on the other wall, it tells the life of Moses. And they parallel each other in the most beautiful way. Now, of course, that, that's much clearer typology between mm-hmm. the Old and New Testament, but we see similar typologies, though more unconscious, between a lot of the Greco-Roman, and, and ultimately world mythology. Yeah, I mean, it, it, just, I'm hoping, it just tells you where their head was at. You know, they... Yeah. Again, it's not, oh, I need to fill in space. You know, I use too many biblical characters. Let's throw in something else. You know, it's not random. It's not unintentional. It's it's messaging, you know, and it just tells you where their head was at. Yeah. And, you know, people from, you know, Cyprian to Origen to Augustine themselves, they could read the Old Testament allegorically without thereby losing the literal sense. They still believed in the literal historical. That was still the grounding. But they believed that there were layers of meaning, right? The allegorical pointing to Christ, the moral pointing to, you know, ethical choices, and what they called the anagogical pointing to, to the end, to the end things, to the, well, I, uh, you know. I, I don't, I don't want to, I don't want to get boring here and, and talk about method. <laughs> That's usually the, the, the killer of interest in class. But, but there is a methodological point to be made here that, that just the fact that, we have a, a, a long Christian tradition of methodologically looking at pagan material and looking at their narrative, their meta narrative, as if you will, and seeing, being able to discern the points of connection 
between the way a pagan thinks about the meta-narrative, the whole story of human history, why we're here, what our relationship to the gods or God is, the fact that they can do that and then intentionally used that knowledge, you know, for evangelism, for, you know, to tell the biblical story. I think that that is a methodological point that's important in a postmodern era. It is. Because, because if, what, what the church needs to do in terms of evangelism and apologetics is the church needs to be able to approach the stories that our, our secular repaganized culture is telling and be able to discern from that the points of contact with the real story, with, with the, the mega meta narrative, if you will. And, and that's going to lead to being able to have conversations with people who are, or have been repaganized, you know, the whole postmodern mind kind of thing. It, it is, it's a different approach to scripture, not different from what biblical writers were doing because they, they're ultimately focused on meta narrative. And, you know, we do this over and over and over again on this podcast. We talk about meta narrative. And so does the Bible Project, you know, things like this. So this is not new in the, in the sense that it's not biblical. It is biblical. It's new in the sense that in our post-enlightenment institutionalized church, it, it, for centuries it hasn't done that. It's reduced right. the Bible and, and theology to do propositional statements. And, and again, I, I'm, I'm, I'm going to be the first one that says truth propositions are critical. Okay, I understand right. that. But but there's a way to communicate a truth proposition other than just reading it. <laughs> you know? One way to like think of it as a metaphor is that it's a, those propositional statements, the doctrinal statements, the creed, that is like our skeleton. But if you want to put flesh on that skeleton, you need the stories. You need the imaginative. You need, and, yeah. you know, it, Skeletons it's no aren't coincidence. that to look at. <laughs> yeah, that's right. We don't want to just look it's at the naked skin, but yeah. we need a skeleton because... You know, if we go too far, like the extreme emergent churches, if you remove my skeleton from me, I'm going to be a, uh, like a jellyfish, right? Yeah. So we need that. But we also don't want to be bare bones. And it's no coincidence, Mike, that it was my young, it was my college students who turned me on both to you and to the Bible Project, because it's important to them, because they're, it's, uh, first of all, it's two things, I think. They're looking for the imaginative. They're looking for the story. But I think they're also looking for truth that has power. And I don't mean political power now, but I mean spiritual power. And what they're finding, you know, again, with you know that wonderful Bible project, not only about the divine counsel, but about holiness, that so difficult concept for our, our world to understand. And yet they bring it alive with this simple animation uh, and this wonderful uh, narrative going on. Mm-hmm. But we need it, you know, and that's what I say. You know, okay, maybe a couple generations ago, we had, uh, you know, seekers who only wanted facts and science. But this generation wants story. They want truth that is incarnational. They want it. And, you know, yeah, it's really they, ironic, they right? Because it, They can see it everywhere. And, and that, right. that, that that's what they're talking about by authenticity. You know, it, the, and, it, you know, it, this it's just, this just struck me. It's bigger than just a bullet, bullet point list. Yeah. You know, this just struck me, Mike. I wish I'd, I'd put it in my book. What we're getting here is a new kind of intelligent design. What do I mean by that? In science, intelligent design means looking at nature for evidence of intelligent design. But we're talking about, we're looking at all the stories and meta-narratives and all of the myths, and we're finding another, a different kind of intelligent design, a single storyteller 
that, as it says in the Chronicles of Narnia, Aslan is at the back of all the stories. Well, here, the gospel is at the back of all the stories. And so it still, it goes all the way back uh, to Jesus's parables. Mike, you know this, when we were in Sunday school, we were all taught Jesus spoke in parables so that everyone could understand him. And then we read the Bible for ourselves, and we saw that Jesus says completely the opposite. I speak in parables, so only those with eyes will see and ears will hear. So it's about opening eyes and ears to see, because I believe that evidence for God is not only throughout nature, but it's also throughout the stories, throughout the myths and the legends, all those yearnings that we've been talking about. They're, they're crying out. Here I am. Here I am. Look at me. Okay. Uh, you know, Augustine comes to that moment in Confessions where nature starts crying out. Don't look at me. Look behind me at the Creator. Well, I think the stories are doing that as well. And and you know, we 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 I mean, evangelicals, we made a categorical error about a hundred years ago. Now, the fundamentalists fought a good fight against you know the, the extreme Darwinists, but they made a categorical error. They decided to buy into the false notion that the only kind of truth is scientific, logical, systematic, mathematical proof. And even though I believe that the Bible has a lot to tell us about origins, it's not a science textbook. It wasn't meant to be. And so we put ourselves in a box where we said the only way we can trust the Bible is if we can show it to be scientific, mathematically accurate in this modern positivistic sense right. that have, did not exist when the Bible was yeah. being written. Does that make sense? We have to bend it, yeah, we have to bend it to the modern context for it to be acceptable. Yeah. It's crazy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We, yeah, yeah. We, we just, we spent a lot of time on this podcast, again, pointing that out. And again, I, I, I just think, again, maybe, maybe the word, you know, method put, put the audience to sleep, maybe tactically. Okay. That, that's mm, a, that's a, word. This is a little more invigorating. Tactics. You know, tactically, you know, we, we need to be able to to discern points of, of the narratives that, that are being given to our kids or in our culture, our culture generates, and being able to take that, that thing that they can see clearly and use that to open their eyes to this thing that they can't see clearly yet. You know, it, yeah. it, that, that's all that, that really, that, again, the church fathers are just wondering about, again, what to do with the similarity. I mean, we know what to do about the differences. Right, okay, yeah, that, that's, that's, that's the easy part. You know, because we know we we have the gospel, we have Jesus, you know, the, the spirit, the, the whole thing. We know what to do about, about the dissimilarities. That's the easy, but right. But what what was a conundrum for them is why are these why do these similarities keep showing up? Right. You know what what does that mean? How did how did they get there? Is, is there is there again design behind that? Is, is this providence? Yeah. Or, you know, and, and that's what we need to be thinking about when we try to you know interact with and build bridges to our own culture. You know, it's funny if you know this, but at least three of the key words that apologists use to show God's presence were actually invented by the secular humanists, okay? First of all, the anthropic principle, the idea that everything we see in our world seems to be there to allow human life to exist. Now, the funny thing is it wasn't intelligent design theorists that came up with it. It was, it was the radical secular uh, Darwinists who came up with that term but by that term, they only mean that it appears to be like that, but they don't actually believe it. But we've co-opted that word. They also did it with logocentrism. 
Logos, that, that everything is centered in the Logos, that there's a center of meaning. Well, that was invented by deconstructionists like Derrida to say, no, all the Logocentrists were wrong, but we've taken their word. And finally, meta-narrative was also invented by the postmodern theorists as a way of saying that the meta-narrative doesn't exist. <laughs> but they gave us a word that we can use because, in fact, it does exist, Mike. Well, keep, so I think it's really funny. showing up. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, they, they, they fight against it and, and end up proving the very thing they're trying to disprove. Well, let, uh, let, let's, so. let's wrap up with, with this question um, or, or this, you know, we, this little thing to talk about. I mean, how, what's the primary audience? Are there, is there more than one audience? And, and how would you recommend someone use this book? I, I really wanted this to be a one-stop book. And I had so much fun with this. Something happened that's never happened to me, Mike. My original version of this book was about 60,000 words. Classical academic press said, we love it, give us twice as much. Okay, no publisher ever does that. They always make you cut it in half. So that's why this was the hardest book I've ever worked on, but I've done it with a smile on my face because we decided to expand every chapter. In the beginning, every chapter only had the retelling of the story and the Christian interpretation. But together with Classical Academic Press, we decided that each one would have an application section made up of questions, but not simple questions, open-ended questions to allow people to really discuss and dig into these stories. And whether you are a homeschoolers or you're at a classical Christian school or you're at a Sunday school or you're part of a reading group, almost any, because I, I, I put so many questions that they're there for all levels. Yeah, and then also I added to notes. Know that, that, that the questions yeah. aren't just about the, the, the myth, the story. Yeah. The questions invariably align the story with either biblical stories or parts of biblical stories and biblical ideas. Yeah. And, and you know, it's full of, you know, biblical passages to make it. And, and see, I, I don't do this. I've never written it. This is a book and a textbook at the same time. It can be read, and I hope a lot of people will actually read this book devotionally. Every night or every morning, whenever you do devotion, read one or two chapters above myths and then reflect on it. Reflect on the verses and whatnot. I hope, but it can also actually be used as a textbook for schools or for homeschooling moms. And I've never written a book where I put together so many questions. And so how did I do it, Mike? I actually sat down and I reviewed in my head all the different speeches I've given, but I looked at the Q&A part of all my speeches. And I tried to remember what were the questions that people most often asked me. And that was kind of the way I was able to come up with you know, real questions that people can struggle with. Um, th this can be read by young kids, you know, by, it can be read by grammar school, middle school, high school, college, uh, and, and it could be used by pastors that are looking for Bible illustrations for their sermons. Um, so I really wanted this, and it's also just a beautiful book. I mean, it's kind of a coffee table book in the sense that it's beautifully put together. It's hardcover. It's got full-color illustrations of famous images uh, of, of art, you know, from the Renaissance and whatnot. Um, and so I wanted something it's got, and they, they really pulled out all the stops because they put together so many appendices of every kind and all sorts of helpful guides. There's even stuff online that I did for them. Uh, and also I turned the book into an 18 lecture series, nine hours, each one's 30 minutes. And it's, it's, I'm not reading the book out loud. I'm sort of retelling the story and rearranging it and just speaking right to the camera. And that's classical university. That is classical you. It's one of those subscription services, but it includes lots of other things for, you know, classical folks. But I did that as well because, again, I just, I just think that the time is ripe to invite people 
into this mythological dialogue because I really enjoyed writing from Achilles to Christ, the Iliad, the Odyssey, the Aeneid, and the Greek tragedies. But I thought in this book, let's go even deeper than the epics and the tragedies. Let's get to the raw material that is behind the epics and the tragedies and almost every other kind of literature and art and music until the modern period and tap the raw material. And so again, this is, this is, you know, just about for everybody. And I did have Christians in mind, but this is a good book for seekers too, for people, you know, that, that, that love mythology and love stories and, you know, love Marvel comics and are open, if they're open enough to sort of follow the argument wherever it leads and, and look for patterns. I mean, people love archetypes. You know, you know that Star Wars was based because George Lucas was reading uh, Joseph Campbell. Um, mm-hmm. A hero with, you know, a thousand faces, the power of myth and all that stuff. It, it, it focuses on the archetypes, the images that keep recurring again and again. Uh, and so anybody that's excited about that, that watches Stranger Things, uh, will enjoy yeah, this book. The, the archetypes are going to be there. You, you, you have, you mentioned the appendixes. Appendix A is where, you know, just sort of a, a brief survey of where classical mythology shows up in you know, music and film and, you know, right, modern and stories and, and whatnot. I mean, it, again, if you were familiar with the content of, of the book and, and, you know, read through that appendix too, there's the, the appendix really covers sort of the more obvious, you know, connections with how uh, some of these stories are repurposed. But if right. you know, as an adult, you know, if you know those movies, okay, you know, you know some either, either a version, a, a Hollywoodized version of a, of a Greek myth or something like West Side Story you actually bring up oh, that, that sort of reenacts, you know, something. If, if if you're familiar with the classical material enough, you will you will pick it out. You'll be able to pick it out of a lot of movies. And, you know, there you go. You could use, you know, the modern movie that your audience, maybe you're teaching a class or you know, right. Sunday school or whatever. You're going to be able to use that. Even even like Harry Potter. Harry Potter, J.K. Rowling dips into classical stuff a, a lot. Oh, yeah. You know, so so you you have this this thing you can talk about to move them from what they know, you know, this this visual representation to this story that this is really where that came from, and 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 here's how that story you know dovetails with with this point of truth that we want to talk about. Have you th- have you thought about this scene in Harry Potter, this scene in Stranger right. Things, in light of the way that the Bible really does the same thing, but with a, l- a little bit of a twist? You know, and it, it's a good. These are good discussion generators, but if you don't have sort of the that body of knowledge, um, then you're a little bit hampered. So going right. through the book, I think, actually would alert you, would alert readers to when they are watching other things. That, oh, okay, I, that, that looks familiar. That sounds familiar. Yeah, it sure is because it's just a rehash of, you know, <laughs> this much older you, stuff. I mean, you, you know? I mean, in a weird thing, you can use the book sort of as an encyclopedia as well, because it's got a very full index. And I'm also hoping, because again, I spend the time to retell the myth at the beginning of each chapter, because I don't want kids just going on Wikipedia and looking up, it needs to be told to them as a story. And so I'm hoping that parents will read the stories out, and most of them are a few that might be too scary, but that will read the stories out loud to their kids and get them involved in that discussion. Uh, because it's just, you know, it, 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 I don't know, Mike, it, it sort of knocks down the walls and barriers. If you say, hey, let's have a discussion of religion, people are going to shut off. But let's have a discussion of mythology. Let's, and let's move from mythology to the big question. 
Who am I? Why am I here? What is my purpose? What is the nature of goodness, truth, and beauty? All these questions, they will be asked in a context of story that, that is much more appealing and that will open people's hearts to really wrestling. Uh, and my first book is called Louis Agonistes because Agonistes means wrestling. And all my books are about wrestling with ideas and wrestling with issues. And, you know, I, I speak a lot at our Museum of Fine Arts in Houston, which is in Montrose, very, you know, very sort of secular liberal place. But they don't boo me because I take it from the point of view of those questions. And everybody needs to answer these big questions or at least think about them. Let's draw you into this and, you know, just avoid a little bit of evangelical jargon that scares them and go right to the heart of the matter, like tell a parable. And it yeah. will open them up to these yeah. deeper possibilities. It's, it, it's a it's it's a useful stepping stone to having discussions that need to be had. You know, it, yeah. it's it's not terribly complicated, but but we often don't we often either don't think about how much of this kind of material, you know, I'm speaking of the Greco-Roman material here, is is actually woven into our entertainment so that we could do that, or we're taught as believers that we shouldn't do it, you know, for, you know, an, an older generation. But I think the, the younger generation, they're, they're not thinking about do's and don'ts when it comes to this. I mean, but they, they just, they're soaking in, in these stories. And I think it's, it would just be very useful in terms of apologetics or you know, evangelism or whatnot to say, Hey, yeah, you know, I, I, I saw that movie or I heard about that movie or I read a review of it or whatever, or I saw this or that on the internet. And you know where that comes from is this thing over here, right? You know this this older Greco-Roman, this older classical story, and and you know what, what's really interesting is that that story, the older story, is actually bridging off of or miming or mimicking or playing off on a biblical story. You yeah. Know, look at that. You know, isn't that kind of kind of cool? Isn't that kind of amazing? And and now that we see the similarities, what might the differences be? Yeah. <laughs> You know, yeah. and and you can have those, you know, you can have real content discussions, but it, it it's a means to get people, you know, into the conversation, and you never know, you know, what that's going to be for somebody, which is why, you know, yeah. I, I, you know, I use the Stranger Things book, the little book that I wrote, you know, early. That that's what I was thinking, you know, and yeah, I, I love the show. I mean, to me, the show is very entertaining. It reminds me of my childhood in so many ways. So I, I was just a I was sucker punched by the first episode, you know, yeah. I mean, I, they just had me in the first episode, but, but as you, as you watch it, it was so easy to see again, these, these archetypal themes, these trajectories. And I, and I just thought, boy, you know, that when somebody at Lexham proposed the idea, I thought this is a no brainer. This is just such a no brainer uh, to, to do this. So I, I enjoyed that. I, I understand it. I appreciate it. And, and I, you know, I like, certain types of science fiction films too. But so when you came along with this book, I, I, I just thought, you know, this is kind of a sweet spot because I, you know, we do mostly biblical stuff here, but we do these either pop culture things or these, you know, literature things, these things that, that intersect with the biblical storyline and biblical content in significant ways. So, you know, I, I'm just glad you wrote the book. I'm glad that you alerted us to it. And that you were able to come on uh, to do this, well, this episode. One thing I think your readers will really enjoy is, uh, okay, I mentioned before that, that Paul says, you know, God did not leave himself without witness. Well, yeah. that speech comes from that hysterical moment when, you know, through Paul, God heals this crippled guy. 
and immediately the pagan crowd jumps up and says, you know, Paul is 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 uh, is Mercury, you know, Hermes, and and Barnabas is is Zeus, Jupiter, and they start worshiping him, and they're like, no, no, stop, we're only men. Well, you can find the backstory to that in my book because in Ovid's Metamorphosis, which is just one generation before this story is happening, um, mm-hmm. Ovid tells an old story of Balchus and Philemon, a story that's kind of like Sodom and Gomorrah, where in fact Zeus and Mercury. Uh, uh, you know, Jupiter and Mercury or Hermes, they come to a town and everybody closes the door on them and only this poor couple shows them hospitality and they destroy the whole town. And that town is very close to where that incident happens in the book of Acts. So these people must have known their mythology to say, hey, we're not going to make the same mistake our ancestors did. We better better start (laughs) worshiping right about now. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. But then, I mean, but, but look how the look how the gospel inverts that. No, no, we're not the ones you're supposed to worship. Let, let, let's right. tell you about the one you are supposed to worship. It's it's just funny, but you know, like I said, sometimes you know, you 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 got to get people where they are. Well, I'm sure this is one of your favorite moments. It's in the Mummy, the first Mummy movie with Brandon Fraser, uh, <laughs> where uh, the, the 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 stupid bad guy, the mummy's coming at him, and he pulls out a cross, and and the mummy keeps coming. So he pulls out a Buddhist thing, he pulls out a Hindu thing, he keeps pulling things out until until he starts quoting the Shema or something, and he says, "Oh, you speak the language of the slaves." You know? But I mean. But it's a start, okay? Let's start it's right there. Start. <laughs> oh, well, thank, thanks for being on with us again. And I, I hope that uh, listeners will check out the book, uh, get it, you know, again, if they're homeschooling or just if they're, they like, you know, archetypes, they like, you know, classical yeah. you know, mythology, these things that, you know, just wind up getting you know, thrown into the entertainment media that we are so familiar with today. Uh, again, just for a pragmatic purpose, you learn something about this old question with the church. You're reminded of virtue, and it gives you a bridge, again, to have conversations with other people. So thank you for being on with us. Hey, well, thanks so much. Like I said, third time's a charm. It was great being back on, and Happy New Year to you and the listeners. All right, Mike, another great conversation with Lou. I love his energy. It just does not get old, and uh, <laughs> it, it's good stuff. Um, again, I want to remind people, I have a, a few copies of his book, The Myth Made Fact, that I'm giving away. So again, hashtag Naked Bible, uh, help promote the podcast out there. Uh, I'll contact you and give you a book uh, of Lou's. It's, uh, it's a nice book, Mike. It's like you said, the full color pictures of some of the stuff. That I, I like. I enjoy it's these. It's very nice. Yeah, I enjoy these uh, Greek mythology stories. So to see it presented the way that he has in his book. Uh, it's a good book. Yeah. I, I got to go out and watch Clash of the Titans now. You know? <laughs> well, I, I kid you not. I just watched Wrath of the Titans uh, last night. Yeah? Okay. Literally last night. I just saw it. Uh, it's the, the, you know, they remade Clash of the Titans movie back in 2010-ish, maybe. And uh, mm-hmm. the sequel to that was Wrath of the Titans. Yeah, yeah I have not seen really, Wrath. You know? Yeah, that was a good one. I, was, I tend to watch it. I tend to watch the Titans stuff just because I want to see what they what they do with the Kraken. You know, I'm I'm a, I'm a big Kraken fan. Oh, okay. <laughs> all right, all right. Like, uh, you know, how are they going to make that look? It's kind of like a Godzilla thing with me, but anyway. Yeah, but the original yeah, Clash of the Titans was was is just still awesome. I actually made yeah. my son watch the original Clash of the Titans, and uh, you know, then we were going to watch the new one. We haven't watched the new one yet, but just. 
just watching the old eighties oh, yeah. claymation and stuff, it was pretty rough for him. Right. So, Clay claymation effect, yeah. Yeah, it was pretty rough for him to sit through it. But it's like you gotta watch this, <laughs> it it's so of, good. It was and then like we a watch punishment. it. <laughs> yeah. And when we watch it, we're I'm like, Oh, it's pretty rough. But to me it's still good, you know. It doesn't even compare to the new Clash of Titans, you know, but still. Right. That's, that's a creative punishment, though. Maybe you could use someday. If, don't get out of line, or you're going to have to watch something made in the 70s and 80s. Oh, I'm I'm having to force <laughs> him to watch Star Trek because he's just so Star Wars, and he hasn't been exposed uh-huh. to Star Trek. So I, that flusters me because I love all of it. So I actually had to force the the remake, the first remake of Star Trek, for him to watch it. And then, of course, he enjoyed it. Uh-huh. You know, he likes it, but. He's just so it's, far it's gone. It's slow, in Star but it's Wars. a good story, though. Yeah, and, and he, but he's just so far gone in Star Wars. So I'm trying to balance it out with some yeah. Star Trek. I'll keep at it, but it's just those older movies just don't compare to the new stuff today with the special effects and whatnot. Right. But you know, every movie that you know uh, uh, Lou's mentioning, The Mummy, and I've just got so much movies to show him because I want him to watch some of these movies like Terminator when he gets older and. Lord of the Rings. He hasn't watched Lord of the Rings yet because I, 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 I'm waiting until uh, he's about 13, yeah, 14. Yeah, probably scare him. Yeah. yeah, I'm waiting until about he's 13, 14. That's my education. Well, just That's just what tell I him, you know, you're, you're, you're grounded. That, that means you, you, can, you can watch all you want pre-CGI. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> That's perfect. <laughs> That's perfect. All right, Mike. Well, that was a good conversation. Next week, we're getting back into Revelation, so uh, we'll pick... Back up. That was a nice little break. Happy New Year again to everybody. With that, I want to thank everybody for listening to Naked Bible Podcast. God bless. Thanks for listening to the Naked Bible Podcast. To support this podcast, visit www.nakedbibleblog.com. To learn more about Dr. Heiser's other websites and blogs, go to www.drmsh.com. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW group. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.